Arlo is a pit bull. Ah, pit bull. Pit bulls are great dogs. It's the people that are bad and make them bad. But Arlo is a pit bull, and Arlo loves his owner. His owner loves Arlo. And Arlo was outside with his owner one day, and as they are coming back to the porch, all of a sudden, Arlo jolts into the corner, snarling and growling, comes out with a copperhead, whipping it on the ground, and ends up killing the copperhead after sustaining a couple of bites. The owner said that she saw last minute the snake, which was coiled and ready to strike right beside where she would have stepped. But Arlo sacrificed himself. He loved his master, his owner. He saw the danger and he charged it without hesitation. Love motivated him to attack the danger. Moral of the story is you better have a dog or a snake will bite you. <clears throat> no. But I'm telling you, if you don't have a dog, you are missing out. Dogs are awesome. We love dogs, don't we? <laughs> but Arlo was willing to sacrifice himself. He saw the danger, and I'm sure he was angry at the danger for the right reason and without hesitation, mouth to mouth with a copperhead. And yes, if you're worried, Arlo survived. He's doing well. And his owner didn't get bit. But see, why, don't, why would I tell you about Arlo? Because I thought about that story as I was working through what we have before us today. And Paul, and Paul's agitation, anger mixed with love at the danger in Athens. And it's a different danger. It's idolatry. But we see Paul in this text today... Out of love for God and love for neighbor and hatred of the evil one and sin, we see him attack the danger, which is idolatry, boldly with the gospel. We're in the midst of what we call Paul's second missionary journey. We've seen him travel. We've seen him again going through cities. His habit is to go into the synagogue and, and share, share with the Jews how Jesus is their expected Messiah. Show them from the Old Testament that truth. Preach to them, to the God-fearers that are there, to Gentiles within those cities. And we're seeing God do great things, save people. Churches are born. But there's also mixed with that Hatred and rejection and persecution. And that persecution doesn't accomplish its purpose. It just fans the flame of the gospel and sometimes moves them on to a new city where God does the same thing. We've seen in chapter 17, the church in Thessalonica established. We have epistles to that church in our Bible. We've seen the church in Berea established just previous to this. And today we see Paul in what was the really great city, worldly speaking anyway, of Athens. There's some decline, but it's still a, still a great city. But he's there in Athens, and he will be preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. And he is fueled by a provocation because that city is in darkness. And in need of Christ. So today, our application, drawing out from what we see in Paul exampled here, is if, if we are to love and glorify Jesus, 
If we are to truly love our neighbor, we must be willing to confront the culture with the gospel. To love God who has loved us so and sacrificed his son for us. To love Jesus who sacrificed himself for us. To truly love our neighbor, we must be willing to confront the culture with the gospel. Willing to take the risk to be unpopular. But look, Paul was provoked. And for verse, and we'll see it in the text. The first thing I want you to see, he's provoked to confront the culture in the synagogue. And this, this is really nothing new. This is what he's been doing the whole time. But we see that he goes first there. It says now in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. So he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. He's given a command for them to come. They're on their way to Corinth. And we'll see a lot of work there and a great church established there. A church with a lot of struggles though. But while he's in Athens waiting and probably looking around. Seeking how to be a minister there. Look what it says. In verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked. He was upset when he came to Athens. Now Athens... This is some 400 years after its golden age. It is no longer politically dominant as it was in the past. I'll let you go read about Athens later. It's not a sermon about that necessarily. But it's still a great city. It's still a philosophical center. I mean, but in the past, you know, think about Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, you know. The artists and the sculptures and, and the, the, you know, just the... the the work in mathematics and all kinds of things that were done in Athens. And Paul is there, but he can't admire what he sees because he's provoked in this city. See, this city is long past its zenith, but it is still a center in the Roman Empire of art, of education, of culture, of knowledge. Though it's, it's lost to Corinth some of its political importance as he's walking around he saw the idols he saw the idols that were being worshipped there's an ancient historian an ancient writer that says there were as many as 30,000 gods idols in Athens 30,000 no wonder one of their historians said that it was sometimes easier to find a god than it was a person because there are temples everywhere. Idols everywhere. And it's a culture of idolatry. When it says here, he says the city was full of idols. It means it was fully given over to idolatry. From the patron goddess Athena up in the Parthenon on the, on the high city, the Areopagus, Right? Down through the, you know, the, some of the gods of the mythology that we're familiar with and, and others. 30,000 gods in Athens. And he's provoked. See, he didn't see it as beautiful. He didn't see it as wonderful. He didn't come and walk into Athens and go, Wow, a lot of gods here, but at least they're sincere. That's all that really matters as long as we're sincere. 
No. Oh, well, they're worshiping God the best way they know how. I won't be too controversial. He was provoked. This, this, this word provoked means to be angered. means to be grieved. There's a profound visceral reaction going on in Paul. There's anger mixed with disgust. Why? Because he knows there's only one true and living God. The Lord our God is one. There's only one true and living God. And all of this is a sophisticated rejection, a suppressing of the truth of that one true God. So, out of love for God, like God, he is disgusted by and has a hatred for false worship, false gods. This word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for God's anger at idolatry. Paul is grieved. He's ticked. He's provoked. He's upset. Why? Secondly, because of, of his love for neighbor. You know what Paul sees? Captivity. Darkness. Rebellion against God. Sin and people in captivity. Athens, as blessed as it was in God's common grace and in people being created in the image of God to do all the stuff that it did in, in philosophy and mathematics and art and all of that, at its core, like every other city, was in captivity. Paul saw these people as lost. And he was deeply, deeply troubled. That the entire city was devoted to idolatry. So he got a club and he went around the city smashing all the idols. He knows that's not the answer. Look, look, look what he does. He's provoked. He's, he's concerned. He's, 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 he's ready to pounce on the danger. But the danger is the hearts where this comes from. Look what it says in verse 17. So, or therefore. See, it's connecting with that grieved spirit. How did Paul respond to this anguish, this anger, this, this concern that's raging in him for these people who are lost and need a Savior and these idols are false lies leading them astray? It says, so, this is how he responded. He reasoned in the synagogue, firstly with the Jews and the devout persons. The first part of his response and the second part in all, his response is witness. His response is gospel. This is gospel provocation. Because he sees the lostness and need of the people. And he knows how to address that with the truth of the gospel. He didn't just hang out in the background and say, well, I'm going to go to, 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 to Starbucks and, or, and I'm going to let these people get to know me so that, so that if, if I can develop this relationship, then, then they will listen to me. 
No, he went straight to the synagogue, as was his practice with the Jews. His witness is gospel. It's not about him, right? So therefore, he went into the synagogue, and look, we're not giving any details. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. That's it. You know why? Because we have the details. We've seen this happen before. Like in Thessalonica. I'll read that for you, verses 2 and 3. Because it gives us a little more light into his pattern when he would go into a city and go on the Sabbath day into the synagogue and seek to tell them their Messiah had come. 17, just a little earlier in the chapter, verses 2 and 3. Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the one you have hoped for, is the one spoken about in all of your, they wouldn't have called it the Old Testament, in all of your Bible. It's all pointing you to this Messiah who has come. From Genesis 3.15, and they didn't have chapters and numbers back then, right? But when God promised that one was coming who would crush the head of the serpent, that's Jesus. The true and greater, Joshua. Hebrew, Yeshua. Same name for Jesus. True and greater Joshua is Jesus. True and greater Moses is Jesus. True and greater prophet, priest, king, son of David. The Old Testament is filled with scriptures about Jesus and His coming. I mean, read Isaiah 53. It reads like a news report of what has already happened in His life, in His crucifixion, His resurrection. So that was what Paul would do. He would go into the synagogue. I'm sure in Athens he said, Boy, you guys are living in the midst of some mess here. But he's, at least there he's dealing with a people that God in His grace has at least prepared to the extent that they are monotheists. They only have one God. At least in word. We read the Old Testament. We know that doesn't always work out. But Paul went to the synagogue. He reasoned from the Scriptures. He showed them that their Messiah was Jesus. His response to the idolatry is witness. The Gospel had made Paul care more about others than himself. Like Jesus. What did Jesus say? I came, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. And you might say, I don't understand all this Jesus stuff. Why are you so fired up about to jump off the podium about Jesus? Because he's the son of God. He's the one predicted. He's God taking on humanity, human flesh. He is the God-man born under his own law to fulfill his law Perfectly because we had all broken it. He's truly God and truly man. One person. Therefore, He can represent God, represent man, I should reach down here, and reconcile us. If Jesus is not God, He can't save anybody. Be nice to you, Jehovah's Witness friends, but they need to know that. If He's not man, He can't save us. 
But he's God and man who came and he perfectly fulfilled the law. He lived and fulfilled all righteousness. He, in thought, word, I mean, if you even think about keeping the law in thought, word, and deed, he did that from cradle to grave always. He deserved only blessing. But he had come to save his people. He hadn't come to, to be about himself. And so he sacrificed, he, he sacrificed himself on that cross. And it, the physical torment was horrible, but the spiritual suffering was worse. He took hell for his people. He took the wrath of God due our sin on himself on that cross. And listen, he didn't go to hell and pay any ransom to Satan and forget all that. Because on the cross, he said, it is finished. You know what that means? To tell us die. Paid in full. Debt paid. And he didn't just go into the grave. He went through it. And he was raised on the third day. And it proves it's all true. And we'll see that when we, next week when we get to the You hear me quoted all the time the end of chapter 17. He's reigning now to see his gospel go to the ends of the earth. And he offers salvation to you as a free gift. Did you know that's the only way you can be saved is to receive it as a free gift? All our righteousness, Isaiah says, is filthy rags. All of our attempts are impure. We cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot save ourselves. We have never and will never keep His law in thought, word, and deed. That's why He came. To do that for us and to die to pay the penalty for our sin. And He, He is a free gift to you. If you will receive it. If you will trust in Him. Turn from all other things in which you hope and all the sin in which we revel, turn, repent, and turn to Him and receive Him, Jesus, as your salvation. Paul preached that in the synagogue, but he didn't stay in the synagogue. That would have probably been a more comfortable place for him. Right? His burden for the Jews and all of that, and he's familiar. But no, he look, he goes out into his less comfortable zone, if you want to put it that way. Point two, provoke to confront the culture of the city. In verses 17, the second has of 17 and 18. Look at it, it says, after he went in the synagogue, it says, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Synagogue on the Sabbath day, every other day he's in the marketplace. Greek agora, that was the name of it, the agora. When we think of a marketplace, we might think of a farmer's market or something. This is just only part of what was there. I mean, the agora, the agora was sort of the heartbeat of the city. It was, think of a mixture between city hall, a shopping mall, an academy, a cool hangout, a place of discussion. And that's what the agora was. Sure, you could buy stuff from all over the world there. Sure, you could buy food and things like that there. You know, you could be having to go to court there. You could sit and hear someone teach there. You could hang out and talk about the latest news. I guess the Agora was Facebook in Athens to some extent. It was social anyway. And it says, and in the marketplace, look, every day with those who happen to be there. Down to the marketplace, to the Starbucks. 
I mean, you can look online at some pictures of this place and the courtyards that it had and all of the things that were going on there. And it was lined with idols as well and all of this. But in the heyday, I mean, Socrates would have strolled through the Agora and been asking questions and seeking to talk to people. You know, Plato, Aristotle. It was a place where everybody went. It was a place one person said that you could go and say, what is the news of the day? And people would tell you. You might see over in one corner this philosopher teaching or talking to a bunch of people and on and on it would go. So it was a cool place. It was a great place. Paul finds where the people are. And that's where he goes. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He's like, where does everybody hang out? That's where I'm going. And so he's in the marketplace witnessing. He's, he's, he's witnessing. His response to the provocation is witness in the synagogue and in the marketplace. And while he's there, speaking with individuals, and maybe, maybe in one of those corners of the Agora, he has a group of people out there that he's sharing the gospel with, that he's preaching to. He runs into some other fellows out there. Look in verse 18. Part of the city. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So the Epicureans and the Stoics came to curse, to curse, to curse with him. No, to discuss with him, converse with him. And who are these people? Well, this is the two best known schools of philosophy. These are the two big dogs in philosophy in the city there. And uh, they were best known. Uh, I'll give you just a little. You can go look up more. But basically, the Epicureans, they, they really didn't pay a lot of attention to the gods. They were sort of would have claimed to be atheistic, agnostic, you know. They were focused on the here and now. Their focus was pleasure. The Epicure, I mean, think about that. Sometimes when we talk about Epicureans, we think of dining and fanciness and all this kind of stuff. Well, they were focused on pleasure. Man's ultimate purpose for an Epicurean was to be found in enjoying pleasure and avoiding pain. Man's, now catch that, man's ultimate purpose. Because listen, I, ha I don't go looking for pain. Right? Uh, something ticked in you if you do. You need an exam. <laughs> but that's not our ultimate pleasure. I mean, purpose. Our ultimate purpose is not pleasure. And avoidance of pain. Our ultimate purpose is the glory of God. Think of it, see if you heard these mottos before. If it feels good, it is good. Ah. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. See, this is a widespread philosophy in our day, too. We they thought life was about feeling pleasure and not pain. And yes, they would have said, be moderate in this. Don't go overboard. Be moderate in your adultery. <laughs> and they saw organized religion as evil. And you can see why. They especially hated the belief and the teaching that evildoers would be punished in the afterlife. You can kind of see why they would hate that, right? Because it's about do your own thing. You know? Because it's all about pleasure. 
and avoiding pain. And it's all about me. And so the Epicureans were sort of agnostic, self-focused, flesh-focused, enjoyment. You know, they weren't just rabidly hedonistic. They, they, they had moderation, but still, their purpose was pleasure. Stoics, however, a little different. They had some respect for the gods. They, they had some understanding or belief in providence. And really, they, it was more fatalism. It's like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Nothing I can do to change it. It's just going to happen. They, they stressed virtue and focused on happiness. They sought to be, so they are stressing some virtues, not, you know. They're focused on happiness. They sought to be self-possessed, composed, collected, calm, cool. To avoid being unsettled and anxious and concerned. You can't, like I said, you can't control what happens, but you control how you respond. Roll with the punches. Now watch this. For the Stoic, life is about being continually happy no matter what happens. And they urge moderation. Don't get over-emotional. Don't get over-emotional about anything. Tragedy or, or, or happiness. So apathy was regarded as a, as a high virtue. They sought to be the masters of the ability to be cool. To just chill. To not be controlled with circumstances. Life's about pleasure. Life's about happiness. But I mean, over all that, you can, you can write, life's about me. <laughs> Some of us live that way. And I'm sure both groups found reason to disagree with with Paul when he's saying there's only one God and his son Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And so you can see that. Now look at their response in the latter part of verse 18. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? That really doesn't sound like a compliment, does it? That word babbler it literally is seed picker. And it's not a compliment. It's talking about a person who, who picks a little bit of knowledge here and a little bit of knowledge there and a little bit here and then pro, pro, pretends to be an expert without ever having really dug down deep and studied. So it's someone who just picks at bits, for, bits of information and then seeks to pass himself off as someone who knows what he talks about. Others said this, He seems to be a, pre a preacher of foreign divinities. And it says, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, praise God, we know what his message was. It was Jesus and the resurrection. But think about their minds. Everything has it is a God. So they saw Paul's preaching two gods. Jesus and resurrection. Anastasis. So they weren't quite understanding. But Paul is in the midst of the city. He's in the midst of the synagogue. He's in the midst of the city preaching the gospel. And he's laser focused on Jesus and the resurrection. Like a true apostle, he's a witness of the resurrection. And they're sort of not getting what he's saying. So look how they respond. At least they don't stone him. In verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Saying... May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. 
for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know more about what they mean. And then it gives us the editorial comment that whether their life was made up of discussing, telling, and hearing something new. And the, the Areopagus, there's also a, a council called by the same name, but this place would be where the elite would go to discuss you know, religion, politics, and, and new topics, and to discuss the, the tell and hear new things. <clears throat> it's, it's used by the elite of the city. And the Latin name, you might have heard Mars Hill. Mars Hill, same place. Just the Latin form of that. Mars Hill. But it was located beside and under the Acropolis. So if you looked up, you would see the Acropolis and you would see um, you know, the, the temples up there, the Parthenon dedicated to the, you know, to the goddess Athena who was, who was the goddess, you know, the high goddess of, of the city. You look down, you would have seen the marketplace down in the city. And you'd be sort of on this mid-hill between the two. And they're always discussing something new. Paul was willing to go there and preach the gospel. And that's what we're going to see next week. What he actually said standing there. It is an awesome summary of the sermon that he preached there with a lot of good things in it. We'll see if we get all the way through it in, in, uh, in one week. But Paul was both disgusted and burdened, gospel burdened, by the idolatry that he saw around him in Athens. He was provoked to compassion for the Athenians. Compassion, his compassion was expressed in bold witness. Witness is compassion. Withholding witness is lack of compassion. Their primary need was the gospel. And Paul's philosophy, nobody believed in sovereignty more than Paul. Paul was, was a believer in sovereignty. He taught election. Read Ephesians 1. But he says, he gives a summary of his philosophy in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He says, Him we proclaim, who? Jesus. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. See, part of teaching Jesus is warning. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy. Struggling with all His energy that powerfully works within me. So Paul has attacked the serpent of idolatry. He's shaken it in his teeth. He's doing it by gospel witness. By going out into the city and talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Because he knows that is what those people need. So as we end, let me just ask a question. What about you and me? Let me ask you this question. Do you see America as full of idols? You're not seeing if you don't. You say, well, we don't have any statues. Nobody's bowing. Well, some people are. I told you the story about Dr. Ramesh, and I went in the bottom of his house, and there's this big old gold statue, and I basically ran out. But anyway, we, typically we don't have statues around our house and around our city, so we don't have idols, right? No, ours are more tricky. They're more insidious. They're to a large extent unseen. But an idol, what is an idol? It's a false god. 
It's a false hope. It's a false passion. An idol is a corruption of the knowledge of the one true and living God. It promises rest and help and all of this, but it is false. There are a lot of idols and there's one true and living God. Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So what are our American idols? I'm not talking about singing. I can't name them all. Because the city is full of them. I, can't, I mean, I can name a few. But they all sum up under one head, self. <laughs> but an idol, an idol in our lives, this, and you've heard me say this before, but an idol is anything that's more important to me than God. And it can be a good thing. It doesn't mean, you know, if my children are more important to me than God, it doesn't mean I get rid of my children to fix the situation. No, it's a heart matter. The gospel. But anything that's more important to me than God. Think about this. Anything that is, absorbs your attention more than God. Anything that absorbs your heart more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Peace, joy, true happiness, security, meaning. An idol is whatever we look to and say, if I had that, if I have that, my life would have meaning. I'll know I have value. I'll be significant and secure. I'll be happy if I just can have that. Or because I have this. If you have it, you know it's kind of empty and doesn't keep those promises. So a few examples are success. I mean, I think that's one of the major ones in America, right? Is success. That's an idol if it's looked to and it's what you want. See, uh, there's a portion of, I'll put in quotes, the church that will help you bring God into your agenda so that you can be successful when it's really still all about you and getting money and stuff. Success. Beauty can be an idol. Or body. Image. Money. Acceptance. I'll just go on down and meddle. Acceptance is an idol. If you have to be accepted by everybody to be happy, that'll kill you, by the way. Power. You couldn't pay me enough money to be the president. Ugh. Status, possessions, retirement, reputation. Self-definition. I am what I feel like I am. God's truth doesn't define me. I define me. And you have to like it. And you can't disagree with me. You have to, you have to support that. Because if you do, if you disagree with me, you're a hater. You're a racist. That's a cool way to win arguments, isn't it? isn't it? Just start calling people names. We don't define ourselves. Our feelings don't define us. There's a Creator. And sure, there's sin and misery in the world and, and mutation and all of these things that cause harm. And our feelings don't always line up with the truth and our desires certainly don't. 
But in the, at the root self, autonomy is the idol there. People all around us are worshiping these things and more. And some of us are trapped in them. I, I know I'd be telling you, as a preacher, I was trapped in the fear of man for a while. When we first started working on Grace Church, I thought I had to make everybody happy and keep everybody that come through the door. And I almost killed all of us. Until I was reading John Owen on the beach one day and he drilled me into the sand on the fear of man. And I came back and I think the next three sermons or next two anyway were gospel war on sin. <laughs> but acceptance. All of that. Fear of man really what it is. It'll, it'll kill you. But listen, let me ask you a question. Are we provoked enough by those idols? Certainly to do something to seek God and have Him remove them from our lives. But are we provoked by the idols enough that it breeds compassion in us for those trapped? Are we willing to risk it all to tell them about Jesus and His salvation? Not to beat them up. Not to be evil. Not to be mean. Not to be jerks. To be gracious and winsome and loving but truth livers and truth speakers. Are we provoked like Paul by the captivity of those around us to speak the gospel to them. And listen, this is just as convicting to me as it is to you. I don't get an out just because I stand up here and preach every Sunday. Has the gospel caused us to love ourselves or, I mean, to love others more than ourselves? Or does fear control us rather than faith? See, we have to fight against, as a Christian, I'm going to give you one idol we have to fight against, and that's reputation. It's still the fear of man. I can throw it under that category. But caring too much about what people think about us. We will disregard what God thinks about us to make people happy, and we shouldn't do that. We need to stop prioritizing what other people think. We need to prioritize God's glory and our neighbor's good. We can't claim to love our neighbor if we won't tell them about Jesus. Uh, gut punch, right? If I won't tell them about Jesus, I love me. See, we need to prioritize God's glory and our neighbor's good like Paul did. It's not a be like Paul sermon, okay? Like Jesus did. Who came not to serve, be served, but to serve and sacrifice himself for us. And listen, this is a convicting question for me, and let it be for you, so I won't be by myself. Do you see the gospel as the answer for the captivity of those around you? Paul could have went off on Athena. Zeus, Apollo. He could have spent all his time talking about how evil that was. It would have been true. But you know what? He saw the gospel as the major need of the people around him. And so that's why he preached the resurrection. See, pursuit of pleasure is not the answer. That's not our ultimate purpose. God gives it sometimes. Right? He's sufficient for whatever. Pursuit of happiness is not the answer. Did you know that if you pursue those things, you can't catch them? That dog's faster than you can run. Chase pleasure. Black hole. Chase happiness. It'll never stay. Chase Jesus. Trust Jesus. 
Well, like he said, priority one, number one is the kingdom. See, life's not about primarily happiness and pleasure. It's about Christ and the gospel and salvation. Am I, are you responding with the gospel? Your lost friends primarily need Jesus. They don't primarily need you. <laughs> oh my. Jesus and the resurrection. See, the atheists around us, at least they claim to be. We know there's, everybody knows there's a God, Romans 1. Agnostics, our friends, thieves, adulterers, look at me, LGBT or whatever you want to call it, need the gospel. You can't keep up with the letters. and they all, We all need Jesus. And, and see, we're no better. We're beggars showing other beggars for where to find bread. We've been saved by grace. We're nothing special. Jesus is. But listen. Read Romans 1. Read other places. Homosexuality is not an alternate lifestyle. God didn't make us that way. It's a violation of his commands and, and it's not. See, we don't go around beating people up about that all the time either. Because adultery is just as wrong. Stealing is just as wrong. Using the Lord's name in vain. Coveting. I mean, you know. But we need to see that what we need to be able to take the risk and be willing to take the risk, not for legalism and not for just beating them up with law, although that we need to use the law in our witness. We'll talk about that in class. But we need our primary message need to be what Paul's was, Jesus and the resurrection. The culture is bowing down to the idols of the day. And we must not. We should risk it all for the gospel. If you have a friendship that's too important for you to witness to them, it's too important. Like Paul, grace should push us out with the gospel to confront the culture, to be willing to be hated. We don't want to be hated, but we're willing to be hated, I hope. To proclaim the truth. Our kids need to hear us proclaiming the truth. And standing against evil. But most of all. It's for the glory of God. Love should provoke us to speak the truth. And it does. I'm not saying none of us are witnesses. Praise God. We are. But we need to grow in it. But listen, it's only going to get harder as our culture descends deeper and deeper into darkness. And listen, this is not progress we're seeing in our culture. It's a descent deeper and deeper into darkness. Rebellion, rejection of God. And the answer is the gospel. Christ and the resurrection. Let me just give you a few suggestions for how to be rightly provoked because a lot of times we grow cold, don't we? But just a few things about being rightly provoked like Paul. And this is not a legalism list, okay? Do more, try harder. It's really look to Jesus and rest in Him and walk in His strength. But I put, I don't know why I made them all R's. 
I don't even usually do that, but I did. First request, pray. Pray. So there you go, Jeff. You've emptied the room completely. The two subjects of the empty room is evangelism and prayer. We'll bring them both in. Pray. Confession first, right? Confessing our failure, our weakness, our sin, our, our, our lack of love for our neighbor manifested in our lack of boldness and witness. And then praying for a love and a growing power and a growing boldness in our hearts. I mean, you saw the apostles do that in Acts and the place was shaken and the gospel went forth with power. So start with prayer, confession and petition, asking God for both forgiveness and power to be a witness. And listen, don't expect it to be easy. That's one of the faults we make. We expect witnessing to be easy. It's warfare. We have an enemy who doesn't want us to talk about Jesus. So pray. Seek God's power. Walk in His strength. Secondly, rehearse. Remember the gospel. Remember who you would be without Christ. Remember what Christ has done for you. That He attacked the danger. That He sacrificed Himself to save me. He took hell for me. That should make me love Him. He took the cross. So pray and remember the gospel and remember it every day and root yourself in God's grace because that's what will strengthen you. And then I said recruit. That's probably a dumb word. But seek others around you to pray with you and to talk with and to encourage you. We can't do this by ourselves. If you just want to be a lone ranger witness, even the horse will leave you. If you don't know what the Lone Ranger was, it was an old cowboy show. But, but get others to talk, pray, you know, do it. We need to do it together. And that's why we're trying to do the classes that we're going to do and the encouragement that we're going to give so that we too can prioritize others because of God's grace and be out there with the truth of Jesus and the resurrection. Then repeat. In other words, this is not just a one-time walkthrough. Our daily lives need to be prayer and loving and remembering Christ and being filled with His Word and His Spirit and doing that in community. And then the last one I would just tell you is rely. Pray for God to use you and trust Him to act and you act. See, Paul didn't just sit down and say, Lord, bring me opportunities. Ring a bell when you do. No, he went out. He went. Therefore, go. He went into the synagogue. He went into the marketplace. You can go into your neighborhood. Oh, mercy. You want me to talk to my neighbor? You can go into your, your workplace. You can go into your friends. You can go into Starbucks. Whatever. But, but pray and remember and bask, your, bask in Christ's love and sacrifice for you. Do it in community. Make that a lifestyle. Rely upon God and Watch what He does with you. You need to be more like that pit bull. I need to be more like that pit bull. Not even thinking about self, but charging the danger. The snake, the serpent, but charging it with sin. We need to be more like Arlo, the one I mentioned up front, who was provoked like Paul by love to attack the danger that was facing his owner. And Paul, to attack the idolatry and the judgment to follow. It's given to man to 
live once and after that comes the judgment. And without Jesus, we'll never make it through to heaven. So attack with the teeth of Jesus and the resurrection. But listen, lovingly, graciously, patiently. Jesus doesn't you make jerks. You, should, you know, we shouldn't be jerks as witnesses. But what, look what Paul did and how he responded to the darkness. That pictures Jesus and how Jesus charged into our darkness. That pictures God's grace for us in Christ. And His power to work in us and through us and convict us, yes, but to comfort us and empower us and send us out with the good news about a Savior who died to pay the penalty for our sins and was raised from the grave and gives us salvation as a free gift. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the humbling, convicting, searching example of Acts 17 and, and the work that you did in, in Saul, who was your enemy, seeking to destroy your church. Having mercy on him, Paul now is an apostle, we see in this text, and a witness for you. That is the work of grace you can do in every one of in everyone's life, you've done it in our lives and you are doing it in some of those lives that we come in contact to with and, and share with. Lord, help us to love others more than we love ourselves. Prioritizing you. Help us to love you first and foremost and seek to live for your glory. Because we've been saved by you, not in order to be saved. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself and help us to love one another the way Christ has loved us. And sacrificed himself for us. Thank you for grace Lord. Every failure. That we've had. To be a bold witness. That sin is covered. You've cleansed and forgiven us. You are growing us like the apostles. And making us fishers. Of men. And that's all we pray. Just keep it. Keep going Lord. Make us better. Make us stronger. Make us more grace centered. Gospel centered. Christ centered witnesses deliver us from all legalism deliver us from all you know hatred and lack of love help us to be people of love people who because you're at work in us with your grace love you people who love one another people who love our neighbor with the gospel Lord, we thank you we're convicted by it we pray that you would continue your work in us and we thank you thank you for the knowledge that Christ died for his enemies. And that he is 100% of our righteousness. 100% of our forgiveness. 100% of our hope. So Father we look to you through your son Jesus. By your spirit. And pray your will be done. Your kingdom come. Your name be hallowed. In all the earth. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.